0: Uh, This story is called The 1949 Texas Ben and Golden Gloves Champion in the United States Navy Training Center Boot Camp September 1950. I've written several uh, copies of this story but this one is a little bit longer and I decided to go with it. When I met Mike Arredondo coming out of the U.S. Navy recruiting office and found out that he had just signed up for four years as a volunteer, as I had intended to do, to become a seagoing swab. We rejoiced over Fate's kindness because we knew that we could not, we would not have to be alone in a misadventure without any semblance of our beloved Austin around that our chances improved 100% that we could make it as a seaman warrior defending democratic ideals in a remote part of the world, Korea. Our enthusiasm shut up because God and our country had assured us that we were doing the right thing by giving us the protection of a loyal bodyguard, not afraid to die for a buddy, from La Mera Mata, hometown USA. Mike had fought in boxing rings, and though his record was five wins and five losses, none of his ten opponents were eager for a rematch. I had fought with the Red Gloves once and had been TKO'd by Rocky Caballero, who knocked me against the ring with savage blows, making me see stars galore. And Pete Gill, who was the referee, stopped the fight after 10 seconds after... Less than a minute, realizing he made a mistake, putting me in a situation in which I had to seek justice through my capacity to box, Pete felt real bad about it because he should he should have punished Rocky for trying to drown me in the deep side of the pool at Saragossa Park, where he was the lifeguard. His only consolation was that he had discovered the next middleweight champion of Texas. Pete Gill had a perfect-looking body of a boxing machine. All the muscles in the right place, great reach, reflexes, and balance on the floor. A perfect thing to watch his string of knockouts. Many of his victims were posteros or from south of the border in Bandido-landia. With each glorious victory, Pete Gill gave added psychic power to East Austin's Chicanada until Pete became the third-rated middleweight in the nation, making it big time in no time with 23 defeats and no losses. But his streak did not last. Alas, our hero had a glass chin. It took the national champ's powerful right hook to discover it, and after that, Pete's challengers were able to find the right spot smack in the middle of his left jaw, where, with one solid hook, could short circuit his brain waves like turning off a switch in in the bathroom. I vividly recall having awful misfortune of seeing a less than mediocre fighter from Kerrville, Texas, a lavacho connect with just the same time that Pete was counterpunching. It was terrible seeing Pete's square body so richly endowed with muscles fall on his head without being able to cushion the fall, like a person struck squarely in the head by lightning. It had been his third loss by knockout. And after that, East Austin's Pride sagged along the sidewalks of East 6th Street with a deeper sense of oppression. It wasn't too long, though, before Pete Gill decided to retire to devote full-time to Gill Brothers Masonary Company and in due time becoming lifeguard at Zaragoza Park and later becoming Rocky Caballero's boxing coach. And sure enough, with Rocky's hard head and well-hidden jaw, he soon began to thrive in the boxing ring as he attacked his deluded opponents with a flurry of fluid and vicious left and right hooks, finished them off, punishing straight blows to the body and face until they fell on their knees or on their back for a long count. And they saw his long, extended arms with Rocky's small face at a distance, with that love of destruction look in his eyes. I had seen that Glee myself when he was just a cub. However, even though Pete's idea to match me with Rocky almost got me killed, I was a winner in the long run because Pete vowed to take care of me by protecting me from those who mistreated me. And as for Rocky, he turned out to be a sweet person I thought of the ring. He had a look of deference towards me, almost as if he saw me as a girl posing as a boy. He'd go out of his way to greet me. His terrible disposition and sadistic propensities could be entirely focused on his enemies inside the ring. That he got paid to destroy was puro pilon. He was bound to prosper and became Pete's replacement. Knock him dead, Rocky! Matanlo! Dale la madre al pinche postero! La raza from East Austin began to shout once again, but since I'm having a boxing nostalgia attack, I might as well start my story of how I became the 1949 bantamweight Golden Glove champion of Texas. Way back, even before Pete Gill, East Austin had a fighter named Art Luna, a classic bantamweight of 5 feet 10, weighing 100. 16 pounds that didn't contain an ounce of fat like he had been forged by compressed barbed wire that wounded an opponent's face every time his tight-fitted gloves jabbed their face. Their arms were left swishing in the air as the punches landed. Hence, he'd knock out contenders in fights in which, literally speaking, they never landed a blow on him. Luna had such a long string of early-round knockouts that a young Americano from Dell Valley, Texas, a postero known as Shotgun, started going around saying that Art's opponent had take, all taken dives. Shotgun, no doubt, was driven by jealousy because he was still only fighting six-rounders and was one of the fighters La Pleve loved to hate, especially when he was fighting a Chicano has been or never will be, Shotgun had history going too and didn't have to demonstrate a disdain for our hero, Art Luna. However, before long, Del Martinez, the promoter, decided to take up his challenge against Luna for a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure for him since he didn't have to worry because all he had to do was become, all Art Luna had to do is become a lightweight for this occasion without losing the speed he had in his arms. Dell was a smart man. He knew la raza of the east side would turn out in throes to take out our suppressed rage on poor shotgun who had been destined to wear his sense of superiority over Mexicans on his sleeve and in his mouth. It was a fight of the century for us. We cheered every bit of the way After our fears had been eased by Luna's lightning jabs and smashing into Shotgun's face, opening a brow or two, flattening his nose a couple of millimeters, the sight of blood from his lips brought out by shouts, Matanlo! Matanlo! Kill him! Kill him, Art! Shotgun was like a stationary target. One shot to the head was all he wanted, but he never got a chance because at the start, the fourth round, the referee stopped the fight to give his handlers time to sew him up and stop the bleeding. It was a humiliation shotgun never forgot, and he vowed to challenge every smart-ass Mexican that crossed his path in the dark late at night. And he would attend the Capitol Theater, sitting squarely in the middle, within an earshot of us sitting in the back, to be able to insult us, calling us necanos with ever-expanding English vocabulary, pepper bellies, wetbacks, etc. I'd catch them right in the belly and felt anger one gets when they have a feeling of helplessness. He might have been able to land a blow on Art he might not have been able to land a blow on Art Luna, but we could still know that he could hit hard. As luck would have it I did come face to face with shotgun one summer night on Sixth Street. I was with my friend Victor Sanchez, who had borrowed his father's 1935 Chevy, and he decided, and I decided, it was time for me to learn how to drive. Victor, who was my age and thought that I was ready, like a dummy, had <laughs> let me get behind the wheel. It so happened that I knew how to fight in the ring better than I knew how to drive. I could not shift properly, and when I got it in third, with Victor's help, I got it going. Suddenly, out from the dark, two men stepped into the street like a couple of cows before I had even learned how to brake. Luckily, Victor somehow was able to grab the emergency brakes within a few inches of the men. It's shotgun, Richard shouted. Let's take off. Of course, I wasn't able to gear fast enough, and Shotgun and his friends were able to come to the passenger door to pull Victor out. I got out right away and went to confront him, but when I saw how big Shotgun and his pal were and how angry they were because they were absolutely sure that I had tried to run them down on purpose. Luckily, both Victor and I were so pitiful in our plea for mercy that Shotgun wouldn't have enjoyed any kind of triumph, he let me and Victor get back into the car with a warning filled with profanity. Both Victor and I were at the time weights, but when I decided to join the Navy at age 18, I had become a welterweight. After the seventh week at boot camp that included several hours of marching drills, including also sit-up. Push ups, jumping jacks, I became a full blown middleweight and acted as if I had a jewel studded championship belt in my duffel bag. I'd wake up and start shadow boxing after a day was over, and I'd entertain Mike and Bobbo with a display of my boxing prowess, telling the story of how I'd become batting gold Golden Glove Champion of Texas in 1949, imagining that. My jabs and hooks were as lethal as those of Art Luna when he had been beating shotgun to a pulp. Little did I know that I'd be recruited to represent Company 312 in a tournament against ten other companies. Mm -hmm. Mike and Bobo, who both knew that I was a phony, were laughing deep inside when they announced to the whole company that I was their hope in the middleweight division. My only hope was that my opponents would be imposters too, but it was not to be My match was with a tall, dark-haired recruit who had actually been golden glove middleweight champion of Nebraska in nineteen forty nine The moment of truth was quick and coming as soon as my opponent got to the middle of the ring. he threw a right hook and landed and I landed hard hard enough to floor me. As I fell, I saw Mike and Babo in the corner laughing like bingos, which threw me into a rage. I got up and threw my whole body at the Nebraska farm boy, throwing wild punches with my elbows and arms, catching him on the right side of the face, seeing the fear in his face, and that he had decided not to hurt me anymore during the next two-minute rounds, knowing that he had already won the decision. I had thrown so much energy into the fight and had exhausted my body so much that I had to run afterwards towards the lockers to find a spot to throw up my breakfast. If I had, been, if I had put as much violence into my fight as I did vomiting, I might have had a chance. In the meantime, Bobo and Mike saw more humor in my near-death experience It took a whole week before they could look at me without laughing at the thought of my abysmal defeat in the ring.